Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 120 of Control the Controllables. For those of you that have listened to many of these podcasts, you'll know that tennis being the vehicle that takes us through life is is a big belief of ours. And I think... One of the biggest challenges for players, for coaches and parents is to understand the context of where tennis fits into your life after your playing career and also some people have difficulties even during their playing career being able to perform because tennis is the only thing in their world and it completely takes over. Well, today's guest certainly seems to have worked this one out. At the start of the year, I made the Giving What We Can pledge, which is pledging 10% minimum of your income to the most effective charities in the world for the rest of your life. feels really, really good. It's been a, a, a fundamentally good shift for me in my career to feel like I'm playing for something bigger than myself. And that was Marcus Daniel. Marcus Daniel is the current 41st best doubles player in the world. He's been as high as 34 in the world. Singles, he he broke into the top 500 before his doubles ranking took over and he started playing the higher level events. He's won five ATP titles. His career prize money is approaching $1 million. He's been a quarter finalist at a Grand Slam three times. And as you heard there on the clip, he is donating at least 10% of his salary for the next years and years and years of his of his career and this is something called effective altruism which he has become a big part of his life it's led him to setting up his own company called high impact athletes where he's bringing other athletes on board in tennis and in other sports to be able to really understand that They've got to try and do the very best with the resources that they can to help as many people in the world as they can. And it certainly seems like a pretty sound philosophy to me. I hope this podcast will entertain you, but I also hope it will impact you. You know, we'll be leaving links and there'll be plenty of opportunity for you to look into this a little bit further if it had the impact on you that it did on me when I had this fantastic conversation with Marcus Daniel. So Marcus Daniel, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Fantastic, mate. Thanks for having me on board. I, I love it. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to have you, Marcus. I have many subjects I want to get into today. You know, sometimes when we've got tennis players on, we can only really talk tennis, tennis, tennis. Whereas I know that you've certainly developed lots of different opinions and philosophies over time. But as a starting point, a tennis player from New Zealand, how did that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, 50 years ago, it would have been answered a lot more easily. Uh, But it was basically just happenstance for me. I I grew up on a farm out in the country and the farmhouse had this old asphalt tennis court covered in weeds next to it. So my my mother and father would play for fun, you know, in the evenings during the summer in in New Zealand, we have really long summer evenings and I was the youngest of three kids. And, you know, it started with my older sister wanting to get involved and hit a ball around then my older brother. And then of course I, I did everything my older brother did. So from, Basically, when I could walk, I was I was running around a tennis court, running around after balls, and yeah, I guess the the love affair grew from there. Because we don't we don't hear so much about tennis players from New Zealand. You know, I, there was a guy actually for, that I played against in college, James Shortall. Is that his? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm well. Yeah, so James was kind of one of the 
one of there's not been there's not been a whole lot yet. Obviously, rugby, cricket, you know these sort of sports. So, in terms of how it's then set up from a structural point of view, tournaments, training, how how, how is the setup in New Zealand? Well, it's, it's a really tricky question because New Zealand is 24 hours flight from Europe and you know Europe is the hub of tennis in the world I mean even to get to America is, is either 12 or 18 hours depending on which coast so the the ability to play tournaments is very limited if you're doing anything other than local and when you're a small country like New Zealand you just have no idea of what the benchmark is internationally unless you can get overseas with these huge flights uh, so I mean there is a there is a fair amount of tennis played in New Zealand. I think the participation levels are very high, but I think it's just very difficult to uh, create the level of competition required in a place that small and removed to, uh, to lift the level high enough to compete internationally. So I think most tennis players who have come out of New Zealand have spent a significant amount of time overseas. It wasn't so much the case for me. I played a little bit of juniors when I was growing up, and so got to see a little bit of Asia and, you know, Australia, but that's really, it's probably a slight step down from the sort of level you find in, in Europe and the States and South America. So I didn't really understand what the international benchmark was until I was 17, 17 and a half and went to Europe for the first time. Uh, and, and that's just a, a struggle for every person who wants to be a tennis player in New Zealand growing up is how do you find that exposure? And I think it's the same, Marcus. We've had a few Aussies on on the show as well, with John Millman on. And just for the Europeans, I, I think sometimes we don't quite understand that. You know that if you're you're going off to on, on tour, you're going off for four or five months, <laughs> whereas you know we get complaints if players in Europe are going for a three week trip. I can't do three weeks. Two weeks is my max. <laughs> you know, and that it's a completely different mentality, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's where you eat two weeks of breakfast coming from New Zealand and Australia. I mean, you know, the majority of my career has been leave home uh, in January or February and don't get back to New Zealand until November or December. And that's just the commitment that you have to make coming from either Australia or New Zealand. Uh, and it's really, really tough. There's there's no way around that. Um what a lot of people do is try to create a base in Europe, and that's what I did myself. But yep. look, if you're away from home for for months and months at a time, it's just emotionally really wearing. And 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 your before we get into your pro career, do you have fond memories of your junior tennis career? I really do. Yeah, I mean, I think I had an atypical tennis upbringing, and that. I really didn't play a huge amount of tennis uh, until I was 17, I'd say. So, you know, tennis was my summer sport um, and I was crazy about football. So I'd play six months of tennis and then during the winter, basically not pick up a tennis racket really? and, and play football. And I, and I actually got to a pretty high level with football, about to the same level with football and tennis. And then had to make a choice when I was, I think, just before I turned 15 and then started you know, I, I gave up football and decided to focus on tennis and then realized, okay, if I've given up something that I really love, I should probably commit a bit more to tennis and moved away from home, moved to a boarding school and started training uh, what felt like a lot at the time, but was in reality was really only probably an hour and a half, two hours a day tops. Yep. Um, and I didn't really understand what hard work was on a tennis court until at 17, I, I moved over to Slovakia and, and did my last year of school by correspondence there. And it was straight into sort of six and a half to seven and a half hour days. And I could hardly straighten my arms for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was really being thrown into the deep end, but my, my tennis upbringing in that sense was very unusual and that I, I did so much outside of tennis until I was pretty old. Again, I find it a fascinating subject. We've had, again, Dominic Kopfer was on the, on the podcast. He had a similar sort of story, you know, when he hadn't played a whole lot up until a certain age. Alex Ward, a, a British guy, came on and said the same thing. Whereas I think the tennis world is obsessed from the age of eight. You know, it's like, they need to get these number of hours. They need to be doing this. The technique needs to be right. Got to play these tournaments. I guess 
your if you almost take your story do you wish you'd done it a different way or do you think the way that you did it is the right way for you and maybe actually good for people to see that being a bit more relaxed up until a certain age and then adding the volume in at a later date is a realistic way to being a professional tennis player? That's a, that's a really good question. I personally, I wouldn't change anything about my childhood. Uh, I think it's, it was amazing for me to experience so many different things. You know, I, I don't know how many sports I played growing up, but it's, you know, more than I can count on my fingers and, you know, was, really into surfing and snowboarding and, and getting into the mountains and, and getting into the ocean. And those are things that are lifelong givers. You know, I, I think a, a tennis career is pretty short, but the things that I experienced in my childhood and the passions that I developed and the affinities that I developed for certain things, they're going to give me pleasure for, for the rest of my life. And I think if you just focus on a tennis ball from the age of eight, you miss out on a lot of that stuff. You miss out on a lot of, the chances to develop these passions and these and these outside interests off the court. And I think that's a shame. Uh, the, the thing that I would change is from the age of 17, looking back, I could have made much better decisions in terms of places I went and how to develop myself as a tennis player more quickly. I think going to Slovakia as the first place I visited in Europe was a real mistake, yeah. but I didn't know any different. It's sort of one of those cases of you can't know what you don't know. And my family wasn't a tennis family. We didn't have too much advice on, on where to go and what to do. So we were relying on the honesty of the coaches and that sort of stuff. And, and I think I tripped up a little bit uh, to begin with. I think it took me three or four years before I found a place that where I could really develop and it was a, a nurturing environment. Uh, but looking back on it also, I, I would have gone to college because it was an option for me and I, I dismissed it because I just hadn't seen any Kiwi come out the back of it and go pro. Yeah. And then, you know, my, my generation or slightly older with the John Isners and the Stevie Johnson. So, you know, I, I think if I'd known a little more about actually how good the US college system can be for developing a player, then I, yeah, I would have done that, I think. And were you advised against going to college? No, I wasn't advised against it. Uh, a guy I have a lot of respect for is a guy called Judy Jones, and he went to the University of Illinois uh, with Kevin, An Kevin Anderson was there, I think, and Amir Delic, and they had a fantastic team there. Mm -hmm. And he advised me to go there. So I actually went and visited and you know, it was, it was, it was great, but coming from New Zealand and loving mountains and ocean and all sorts of outdoor stuff, I couldn't fathom the idea of living for four years and completely flat and cornfields. <laughs> so, you know, I wish, I wish I'd sort of gone to Southern California and seen USC and seen the, you know, places that had what I thought was a really cool lifestyle alongside the college stuff. But again, I only visited one college and decided to try and go pro instead. Uh, but looking back, I, I think that was probably a mistake for, for my development. And again, it's a good one to, to hear because if I go back, I'm probably 10 years on you, Marcus, but if I go back to, I went to US college, but I was kind of a bit of a black sheep at that time. You know, it was almost like you failed. Oh, he's, he's given up, he has, you know, he's, he's, he's gone off to college. Whereas almost now we go 10 years further from you it's almost like everybody now goes to college you know it's like it's 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 very much in the forefront and I think it just shows the importance of education on it and to actually understand and you know making sure you are getting the right fit for your own development um but I certainly am a big advocate of, of the college way for the for the right for the right person and I've seen you play a lot and I would say you would have been made made for for U.S. college as well yeah, I agree. And and I had the same sort of perception of it that those other people had was if you go to college, it's a little bit of a step backwards. Yeah. These days, I really don't see that at all. And the other thing that, that comes into it is these days you play your best tennis in, in your late 20s. You know, the, the average age in the top 100 is, is somewhere in the late 20s. And for most 17, 18 year old guys, you're not physically mature enough to mm -hmm 
to cope on the tour. And, and that's what happened to me. You know, I, I herniated a disc in my back sort of one and a half years in, and that plagued me for the rest of my career. So I think for, for a couple of reasons, college is the best option. One, just to develop physically, because unless you're a Rafa or an Alex Verev and you're already like really playing at a high level and can keep that up for a long time, then a lot of bodies can't handle it. And why did you continue then? So if you've you've started playing, you've done okay on in all respect all respect to your, your starting career. You've now done very well. You know, someone who's been in in the thirties and forties now for a, a good few years. You've you're having a great career. But before the first four or five years, where maybe your ranking hadn't moved to a point where I would imagine you're making money, you're having injuries, you've maybe made a couple of bad decisions. What was it that kept you going? Uh, I think stubbornness yeah. is, is the, the main thing. I mean, so when I got to Slovakia, I started working incredibly hard and it felt good. You know, it felt like I can't do more than I'm doing right now to, to try and push this professional career forward. But it wasn't very smart work. Like, you know, I was lifting heavy weights, but I'd never been taught how to lift heavy weights. Yeah. And so I think looking back, it was sort of destined for failure in some way, especially a sort of a, a lanky frame like mine. Uh, but before my body screwed out, I actually was making pretty rapid progress. You know, okay. I, um, I think I got to like 700 from having no ranking in, in less than a year, like maybe nine months, 12 months, something like that. And for, a, for an 18 year old, that's not bad. Um, and so I was starting to play the main draw of futures events, starting to feel like I was a professional tennis player and I felt like the trajectory was there. And actually, so, um, I, I got a wild card into the Auckland ATP tournament on the double side when I was 20, uh, and ended up winning. Uh, and so I was like, okay, wow, like I can compete on, on the ATP tour stage and then about three months later, I think I, I herniated the disc. Okay. And from that point for the next years, it was get healthy, start like building a ranking again and then get injured. And so it was the cycle of, I felt like I could get a better ranking and move up the rankings, but then I would build some momentum and then get injured and have to sort of start from the start again. And, you know, I, I don't know if it would, if it would have been the right thing to, to sort of hit pause and see if college was an option then at that point, I think it would have felt more like giving up than going in the first place. But yeah, I guess I, I just sort of persisted. And then actually when I was playing my best singles, um, my doubles career sort of took off and it naturally forced me to play more doubles than singles. And eventually the rankings just uh, separated yeah. so far that yeah, it just made sense to focus on doubles. And, and one thing that's really clear looking, if I, if I look at your career by numbers, and I know the numbers don't always tell the exact story, but if I look at it by numbers, one thing that really interested me, I think you, you broke top 100 doubles back in 2016. You then seem to spend kind of 12, 18 months in between 90 and 80. Then you spent 18 months between... 70 and 60 <laughs> and then you spent 18 months between you know you seem to have had a really steady and progressive career which is then then got to the stage where you've had a three or a four next to your name now for three or four years you know which which is really impressive and if you don't mind just sharing a quick story Igor Svontek who the current French Open women's champion um she talked about on the podcast how she kind of doesn't know why she won the French Open. She's won it, but what she's working on is finding that ability to be consistent and that ability to, for her to understand, I get what, what, what those processes are so that she can repeat that level year on year on year. And it just seems to me that you've really got that pretty good. You know, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, if that's something that you've ever thought of or that you've even recognised yourself. Yeah, honestly, it's not something I've thought of. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear that it's been a, a steady progression like that. I think the thing for me 
has always been I do feel so so my my ability as a tennis player has definitely improved over the years but I don't think that that was the thing that was holding me back from getting from 100 to 80 or 80 to 60 or 60 to 40. I think the barrier that I had to break through was a belief barrier yeah. uh, where, you know, this is one of the, the real drawbacks of coming from a place like New Zealand and coming from the country in New Zealand is the international stage is so far away and so huge as to seem like a dream place. Yeah. So when you play your first slam, it's like, what am I doing here? You know, like I, I don't belong here. And I think at every level, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome and having to deal with that and become comfortable enough with your level and with the fact that you're beating the people at that level to be able to take the next step forward. And now I, I think, or I hope at least I'm at a stage where uh, I don't, have any imposter syndrome at any of these events uh, you know I feel comfortable on court with with anyone I mean I still get a thrill if I'm playing some of the biggest names on the single side but yeah it's it's those barriers in believing that I belong at this level that held me back yeah and and I hope uh, I hope this isn't my limit it's interesting to hear I've spent three or four years in the threes or fours and yeah, hopefully this year I can get a tour or one next to the name. Yeah, no, definitely. And 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 I have no doubt you will, Marcus, you know, and looking at it. It's just I just think it's quite a it's quite a it's a fascinating topic. And we could go into belief and we could probably talk to belief for, on, on belief for the next two hours. But one thing that sticks out for me as well, that I think it's really interesting, is when you were 20 years old, you won that ATP event. You know, and, and I think that the impact something like that can have. On a player, you know, if we take a, a Dan Evans, who for, for various reasons has dropped out the rankings before, you know, and, and each time because he's already been of a certain ranking, it's kind of not really an issue for him in his head to get back to that ranking. And it's then always how you, I guess, I guess, push on from there. So one thing I would love to hear, what's the difference between someone 41 in the world in doubles and somebody who's top 10 in the world in doubles? Uh, I think it's that word you used a little earlier. It's, it's consistency. Uh, and in doubles, I think that's actually especially important because the scoring system is brutal. And a match that you've played better than the other team cannot go your way if the last 10 minutes don't go your way. Uh, but I think putting a consistent level and a consistent level of belief on the court just gives you enough opportunities to squeeze through matches uh, that you, you get the opportunity to play for big points. And the thing is something that I, I've been struggling with and, and, you know, I think systematically needs to be addressed is the jump from playing 250s and 500s to being able to play the masters is huge and it's really really difficult to make that jump and it's comparatively really easy to stay in the masters once you've reached it just because of the amount of points the amount of extra points that you play for every year so yeah i think the 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 difference between top 10 and 30 or 40 is a lot of those top 10 guys had a big breakthrough and then maintained consistency to play for enough extra points to to stay there um, and I've seen it, you know, with, with a fellow Kiwi, Mike Venus, he had a breakthrough at the French Open and, and, you know, due credit, he had a great year the year before and performed really well at 250s. But still, you know, I think he and Mate Pavic won something like four or five 250s the year before and couldn't play any of the Masters. So he had a breakthrough at the French Open, got to a ranking where he could play Masters. And then you see that, that a guy like him belongs there and has stayed there ever since. So. Yeah, it's just uh, for doubles players, it's trying to find that one or two weeks of breakthrough and, and really making use of it so, and, and then maintaining the consistency to stay there. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I spoke to a, a player I'm working with right now and honestly, I believe his level is currently seven, 800 in the world level. You know, I think he's, yeah, he doesn't have an ATP point yet. And, right. and, and I guess for the listeners listening, you know, how I, how I would explain that is in order for him to get an ATP point, 
he has to probably beat a player 700, a player 600, and a player 400 just to get one ATP point back-to-back in, in the same week. And he's had wins over guys of that ranking, but being able to... And it's funny how that tennis system works, uh, works like that, you know, all the way through the levels. And I guess moving into to that, that now you have a bit more of a voice, you're on the ATP council... You know, is that something that is being discussed that maybe at that end, because it does, and, and it makes a lot of sense if I look at your ranking right now, Marcus, you're, you're kind of in the crack, in the in the crack of not quite getting in unless you can get someone probably top 20 in the world to play with you. You're in that crack where you've got to be unbelievably successful at the 250s, 500s to make the jump. But it seems to me that maybe that's something wrong with the system. Is that something that's been looked at? Are you bringing that voice to the table? Yeah, it's definitely something that has been looked at and, and we're still looking at it. And the other thing is, I think it's I think it's the wrong incentive to try to split teams up to play with a top 20 singles guy just to make it into masters to try to move up. I, I think that diminishes the sport of doubles. I think we want to incentivize teams to stick together because if teams stick together, then you can market them as teams. Yeah. So I think uh, creating smoother upward flow in the ranking system or more ranking mobility at that stage is, is going to be positive on a number of levels. Uh, the tricky thing is, creating that upward mobility means that tournaments have to invest a little more. I mean, masters that have 32 team doubles draws, I think they provide great upward mobility. Then it's like the top teams don't have buys, which is basically free points. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of hurts to say it, but sometimes those second rounds can be against singles players who have beaten a good team and then uh, don't feel so, so passionately about continuing to compete at 100%. So some of those uh, top-seeded teams get really soft 180-point weeks. And 180 points is a lot of points. That's that's third round of a slam, you know, yeah. and they get nine opportunities to do that a year. So having a full doubles draw, a full 32 doubles draw, means that an extra five or six doubles teams will get into the tournament. Those are the doubles teams that have performed consistently enough at 250 level to deserve to be there. And then if they have the level and they can have a breakthrough week, then they move up. Uh, I think that should be a, a standard. I should think that should be a minimum standard for Masters events. But yeah, as I say, that means that they have to put up an extra X amount of tennis players in hotel rooms and, you know, they have slightly less availability of practice courts, etc. But going forward, this is something that I, I think is a must for, for doubles. I'm sure the players would get an Airbnb if it gave them the option, you know, if it gave yeah. them the op option to be playing for those points and progressing their ranking, you know, maybe that goes on the agenda at the next board. It's okay. We get, I'll get a sponsorship, Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> but on the, on the council, we hear a lot. I'm a, I'm tennis is my life and I, I'm big into tennis, even though I'm not at the grand slams every single year. Uh, but we, we do hear, and obviously Jamie Murray's been very vocal about it on social media this week, 23% drop at French Open for, for prize money. And it feels as if it is a little bit kind of doubles is, is palmed off, pushed to the side. In terms of the voice that you have as a doubles guy on the ATP Council, how, how strong is that voice? Is that voice being heard do you feel like the doubles guys have a, have an equal voice within the within the tour to those singles guys? I definitely don't think we have an equal voice. And to be brutally honest, I don't think we should. I mean, I, I do think singles is the sport that brings in the revenue, it brings in the fans. And I think doubles is a fantastic game. And I think it has more fans than than we're given credit for. But we don't bring in the same revenue as the singles guys. In saying that, you know, once I got over my initial nervousness at being on a council that's full of legends and being comparatively unknown and, you know, I haven't won a slam, won a slam in doubles or anything like that. Once I got over that nervousness, uh, I do feel like my voice has been heard and we have pushed some stuff through for doubles on the ATP side that I think is good. The unfortunate thing is the slams don't have to care what the ATP thinks or does. And the French Federation and Roland Garros, uh, I think have acted 
pretty abysmally the last couple of years to have changed the dates of their tournaments without consulting anyone, to have changed prize money distribution without consulting anyone. And they call it a philanthropic prize money fund. But the reality is uh, they're negatively impacting 264 doubles players a lot. And doubles players already earn less than a tenth of what singles players earn. And they're only positively benefiting a comparatively small percentage of the singles players. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really frustrated about what they've done this year with uh, Roland Garros. There's a lot of action going on behind the scenes to see how we can address this. You know, we're, we're writing a letter to the FFT saying this is what happens when you break it down in numbers and this is why we think that's not okay. Whether something's going to happen about it this year, I'm, I'm not so confident, but yeah, I, I just... It's frustrating that they seem to continue to think that they can do this without repercussions. So it's up to us to think about what sort of consequences we can we can present to say, look, you know, <laughs> we have jobs too. We we're not as well off as as the singles players. So if anyone needs protection about their earnings, it's it's the doubles guys. But yeah, it doesn't seem like they care. Really good answer, but there is there is some grumpy old man sitting listening to this podcast or grumpy old woman or grumpy young man or grumpy young woman that's going they're just they're lucky that they get to play tennis they're lucky that during a global pandemic they're getting to hit tennis balls they should stop complaining and get on with it da, 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 da. so what's your response to those guys i think that's a i think that's a fair call you know this pandemic's been horrible for for so many people and the reality is it's been horrible for us too uh in march last year all of us lost our jobs. Uh, as a doubles player, I don't receive any money from endorsements. So when the tour stopped, essentially I had zero income and I had no idea if I was gonna have an income in, in the near future. Uh, and it was that way for six months. Um, and then I think you know the ATP has, has made a good effort to put a calendar together since August last year. The other thing I'd say is I don't think it's well known enough how expensive a tennis professional's career is. Yep. So while you might look at prize money and say, well, that's a lot of money. In reality, I mean, I'm, I'm spending well over a hundred thousand dollars a year just to be on tour. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know many people who have such expenses as an individual. Uh, so I can say with absolute certainty that at least on the double side, even if the prize money looks good, a majority percentage of that is going towards expenses. Um, so that's just something for those people to keep yeah. in mind as well. Yeah. We're not as glamorous or, or well off as they might think. What's break even for, for doubles? And I guess if you can give us male and female, but if you only know male, what would you say break even as somebody who's traveling and, and having a coach with them, let's say 50% of the time, I know that, you know, you can't afford to have coach with you every week, but if you've got a coach with you 50% of the time, what's a break-even ranking? Well, I think this is actually largely dependent on where you live as well. Uh, because for me, being from New Zealand, uh, it's a lot more expensive than, for example, someone who has a base in Central Europe and can drive to a bunch of tournaments. For me, I would say break-even is probably somewhere around 120,000 US dollar mark. And, you know, you, you've got to have a pretty decent season to to get to $120,000 as a doubles player and I'm lucky that I've had some seasons where I've been you know well in excess of that uh well I say well in excess of that but I have been in excess of that but you know it's 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 not easy to get to sort of 60 or 70 in the world where you might be earning around 100 or 120 uh and if you compare it to other sports or other industries you know, the top sort of 50 or 60 in the world and most industries are, are very well off, not just sort of trying to break even. So that's that's another perspective that I think people don't really understand is look at the top 50 basketball players, football players, NFL players in the world. They're earning millions, not just trying to scratch a living. And how does that how does that change? Because I guess it's a, it's a message everyone in the game knows. You know, I think we all can see that pretty comfortably you know what are the ATP doing to change that do we need and, and I would love to get your thoughts on the PTPA 
you know, that they, they've come in, you know, are they coming in for that reason? Is it going to help if we do have a couple of different unions working, working and almost trying to kind of stop any kind of monopoly and, and give a little bit more player power? So what, what's, what's your thoughts on that with the PTPA kind of making this stance? So I, I think there are a few different thoughts there. The first is uh, I do believe that the strategic vision that the ATP has at the moment is going to benefit all players. Um, that's with creating a better premium product, uh, going into a 50-50 profit share. Uh, I think if we grow the sport of tennis and we're in a profit sharing uh, system, then it's just gonna, it's going to benefit all of the players. In terms of the PTPA, when they first started, I, I really had zero confidence in, in what they wanted to do. And that was mainly because of the way they were going about it. Now I feel like they may have their act together a little more. When, when I got elected to the player council, I sort of stopped having anything to do with the PTPA because I felt like it was a bit of a conflict of interests. Um, so anything I'm hearing, I'm hearing secondhand about what their plans are and, and, and that sort of stuff. If they somehow find a, uh, a non-adversarial way to be a powerful player voice, and they have some leverage and some, some bargaining power with tournaments, then it's going to be a positive thing. I can't see a way that they're going to be, be able to do that alongside the ATP. Maybe I, maybe I just haven't thought of how they're going to do it, but if they can do that, then I think it's going to be really positive. Uh, but I think, yeah, we're, it's going to be a while for, for that to shake out. But Marcus, I want to, I want to move into something a little bit different. Um, you know, I could, we could get into, there's loads of topics I'd love to talk to you about, but I'm also, I'm conscious of your time and also conscious of the listener's time as well. And I, I touched on this at the start, the start of the podcast, you know, you've, you're someone who has, has used your platform. And for, for those listening, we've been talking about prize money and Marcus gives 10% of his prize money to charity, you know, as a, which is which is something that you know I've looked into the last few days. Effective altruism, and then going into then the charities that you've set up. So, can you please tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah, this is uh, something I've been involved with. Actually, I think since about 2015 or 2016. Basically, since the first year that I managed to save some money on tour. Because it is a, it's it's sort of an unfortunate truth that tennis is a very self-centered sport, and that's never sat perfectly with me. So when I had a chance to try and even the scales a little bit, I jumped on it and discovered effective altruism uh, in in 2015, and it just resonated completely with me. The idea of doing the most good possible with your resources. So for that. That for me at the time meant a little bit of money that I could give and being able to advocate for these ideas that I felt strongly about. Uh, and yeah, so, and that pledge grew until um, last year, I gave a little over 10%. This year, at the start of the year, I made the Giving What We Can pledge, which is pledging 10% minimum of your income to the most effective charities in the world for the rest of your life. Feels really, really good. It's been a, a, a fundamentally good shift for me in my career to feel like I'm playing for something bigger than myself. And it's also really cool. It means that every time I step on a match court, every time I win a match, I feel great for myself, but I also feel great because I know that at the end of the year, I'm going to donate a little more and change or save the lives of a bunch of humans or animals or improve the environment, that sort of thing. And yeah, and then and then last year when COVID hit, uh, and like I said earlier, we, we lost our income and we lost all certainty of income in the future. I was wondering how I could increase my own positive impact on the world. And I didn't feel like I could give more money at the time, uh, but I knew I could be a better advocate. So that led me to the idea of starting an organization where I could try and bring more athletes on board and, and try to spread these ideas of giving effectively and, and doing the most good with every dollar as possible. And that was, that, that was the conception of high impact athletes. And we launched, uh, early December last year. And, and actually it's, it's grown rapidly. It's, it's been amazing. Uh, you know, two months later, we had eight HIA athletes in the quarterfinals of, of the Australian open. And, and that was just incredibly special. 
And now uh, we're representing, I think probably around 15 to 20 different sports and lots of tennis players are on board and it just keeps to be, keeps growing exponentially. And, and I'm super excited about the, uh, the potential impacts that we can have on the world as we grow. Well, well done. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it, no, no, seriously, Marcus, it's, it really is. And I think for, for those listening, I mean, we'll have all of the links on, on this podcast and, it's certainly got me thinking the last few days. And I think if we are living in a world where we're all doing what we can to give the best that we possibly can with the resources that we have, what, what a world that would be, you know, and, and there's some, there's some really powerful Ted talks, you know, if you, you know, you look into effective altruism, you know, on, on the websites, you know, you'll, you'll find lots guys. And I, I urge you to, to, to really get out there, look into it and, and, and give what you can and, and see, see if it can, it can effectively change the way that you, the way that you think. And I think one thing that even they're talking to you, Marcus, like I, your face lit up and it was something I remember Nick Kyrgios saying, there was a couple of things that stand out with what Nick Kyrgios said to, because it, I'm actually, I'm a big fan of Nick Kyrgios, even though I know he has his, he has his challenges and at times you think, don't say that. But at the end of the day, you know, he, there was two things. One, he said when he was, he went to play an event and he was just getting WhatsApp messages from the Australian Davis cup team. And he felt like all of a sudden he was actually connected to a different purpose. He was, he was playing for the team, even though it was an individual event. Cause I don't think that many of us in the world are individually minded, you know? And then, and then secondly, when he set up his charities back in Australia and, and, and to give back to the kids and, you know, give, give opportunities to so many kids that all of a sudden his purpose for playing tennis completely changed. And I saw that very clearly in your face there, that you know when you're winning matches and, and what you're what you're giving back, um, I, I think it's absolutely incredible. Can you share with us some of the other athletes that are involved and um, you know and where and then the vision of where you see this going over the next few years? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so since this is a tennis-based podcast, uh, the biggest tennis names we have on board are Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, Kevin Anderson. Milos Raonic, John Milman, you mentioned was on the podcast mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, Jan Leonard Struff, Pablo Andohar is, is on board. On the double side, we've got uh, legends like Daniel Nestor, um, Bruno Suarez, Rajiv Ram, Bopana, Qureshi, uh, you, just lots and mm-hmm. lots of tennis players. If people want to check out the full athlete list, it's uh, at highimpactathletes.org. Uh, and you can check out all of the different athletes we have from all the different sports. It has just been really special to see how quickly this has picked up steam in the tennis world. And I'm really hoping that with as as more athletes come on board, other athletes think, oh, you know, this this must be really legit what we're doing uh, and feel more inclined to come on board and donate or pledge a percentage of their income. Because that's what we're aiming for is the, the percentage pledge is just such a meaningful and beautiful commitment uh, that ultimately we aim for as many athletes as possible to be pledging a percentage of their income to the most effective charities in the world and to try to make that a, a norm across sport where if you do really well with your sport to use that platform to spread the ideas of giving back and walk the talk by, by giving back yourself. And I'm just stoked and I'm really excited about how many people are, are excited with me about this idea of using our using our platforms and using our our luck and in, in, in life to help those who aren't as fortunate as us brilliant and and when you say effective charities that the, the most effective charities how do you know that i guess that's something with charity work how how are you making sure that the money's going to the right places yeah that's that's a fantastic question and it's 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 that question that uh is I'd say the basic reason for why high impact athletes exists, because it's so hard to know what a good charity is. It's so hard to know how much of your dollar is going to get to the place where it actually does good and whether the intervention that that charity uh, performs at the end of the day actually benefits the, the people, the animals, the environment that it's supposed to benefit. And it's, it's been shown uh, with some rigorous analysis of charities in the past that even if intentions are good, sometimes charities can actually harm the targets that they're trying to benefit. 
so I don't claim personally to be a, a, an expert in charity evaluation, um, but I'm very lucky because there are a bunch of really, really stringent research organizations that have dedicated decades of research and huge amounts of hours into finding firstly the most important cause areas in the world where we can reduce suffering the most per dollar spent and then within those cause areas finding the most cost effective impactful and very importantly transparent charities where you can know exactly what your dollar is doing from donation through to end result to the to the extent where you can say okay if i donate five hundred dollars to the against malaria foundation I can know with certainty exactly which entire village I'm going to protect from malaria for the next three to five years. Right. And that is, that is incredible. That is a life-changing impact for a whole village of people just like you and me. And you can be certain about that impact and know that for something that's, you know, $500 is meaningful, right? That's a lot of money, but for us, it's, it's meaningful, but it's not life-changing. Our, our quality of life is not going to be lessened by giving $500, but a whole village's life is going to be improved drastically because of that. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thing that, that I get really excited about with these charities is you can do so much impact for, for so little. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I mean by effective charities and trying to push the best charities in the world in front of as many eyes as possible because unfortunately effective altruism and effective giving and the charities that go along with it are underrepresented because they don't have the multi-million dollar marketing budgets that the household names have very good it's i, I just was thinking in my head there 500 dollars it's a it's an effective first serve forehand body at nine eight in the tie break isn't it you know like for some players you know, you get that one right a couple of times over the season and those $500 goes a long way. Yeah, it does. No, it's great. And, you know, at the Soto Tennis Academy that I that I run, we, and I have to shout out uh, Ollie Cora as a, a young coach at the academy. He he actually is really driven at the academy that we, we've now set something up in Kenya where we are, we've been collecting been collecting money we've been collecting kit equipment you know all of these things which came from the time of we, we took the academy over there for some itf events and once we collected it all and then we've been doing the kids at the academy been doing fundraising days you know it's been fantastic we're then looking to use some of that money to bring one of the coaches over to help to help educate him so he can then go and help educate the kids back in kenya and, and but what he said to us our contact there he said we have to be really careful how this is distributed you know and that was the the same that which is where i think maybe the question came so in the end what we did is the the kenya wheelchair team were over in portugal playing uh playing in like a qualifier for the paralympics um and we took the vans over to portugal to del hand deliver the kit they brought over uh big suitcases and to the point where when we gave them the rackets, they were playing qualifiers for Paralympics. A couple of them didn't have a racket. So it was like wow. we were literally giving them rackets to, to play the events. And then what they were going to do is take all the kit back. And, you know, and that's, a, that's a relationship that, that we've started and we haven't scratched the surface yet. But that feeling of helping and, and, and helping towards a greater good really is special and, it, and it's something that I know us and myself and the academy want to get involved in more and more so a massive well done to you like I say all of the links will be there last topic that I want to want to touch on um, which again I think is quite a hot topic in the world you know we've seen game changers on Netflix and you know the, the the vegan world, and then it's been countered by other things, and then there's the sea spiracy, and there's you know there's many many things coming to our our eyes and ears nowadays. And I know yourself, you're someone who is a vegetarian when you're traveling playing tournaments, and you're a vegan when you're off tournament play. Tell us from your opinion how that is as an athlete. You know what some of the messages to other athletes out there on the positives and possibly some of the negatives of that as well. Yeah, I've, I've been, I think I, I could only fairly call myself vegetarian for around four years now. Uh, and 
it's been a great change for me. Uh, it sort of was triggered by an evening in a sushi restaurant in Japan where um, a fellow tennis player ordered whale sushi and I just, something flipped in my head. I, I couldn't eat it and it started me questioning why I felt that way about a whale, but I didn't feel that way about a cow or a pig or a sheep or other fish. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized there wasn't any legitimate difference. Uh, what I was relying on for those differences was, was culture and tradition, you know, what I grew up with. And so it just started this whole questioning process of what's, what's right and wrong for me. And where I landed was uh, I don't want to cause any suffering if I don't have to. And so that basically necessitated, necessitated a vegetarian diet for me. And, and I was a little worried to begin with because you know, I, I grew up on a farm and, and had eaten meat for most days of my life. And I didn't know whether I could get enough protein. Uh, and as an athlete, of course, that's, that's really, really important. So I gave it sort of a two week trial period uh, when I was at home for a, for a couple of training weeks. Felt exactly the same amount of energy. I can't say I felt more energy, uh, but I did feel lighter in my stomach, which was, a, which was a positive. You know, I could have lunch and then an hour later comfortably train rather than feeling like I had to digest for a couple of hours before being able to move around a court. Uh, and yeah, since then, um, I've had a lot of people ask me about this, especially when the Game Changers came out. I think that was a fantastic documentary because rather than sort of trying to put people on the back foot about ethics and about, you know, I think you're being a bad person sort of, sort of assault, it was, hey, here is this way of eating that you can actually use to improve your performance. And as athletes, everyone is trying to improve their performance every day. So I had a lot of questions about diet, et cetera, after that. Um, and I was always honest, you know, I, I, I haven't felt a, a physical benefit. I also haven't felt a physical detriment from the diet. The thing that's really changed for me is I now feel, I feel more like I'm living my life uh, in tune with my morals and with my ethics. And there's a sense of comfort and a sense of solidity in the way that I'm living my life that I actually do think helps me on a tennis court. It's just a, a general feeling of groundedness. And that's hard to sort of quantify or, or, or make tangible in any way, but I, I, I do feel it. So yeah, I, I, I recommend for everyone to look into it, uh, to, to question the traditions that they've grown up under because uh, traditions don't have to be all-consuming and powerful. Uh, we can choose which which rules we live by, and, and we can make them our own. And yeah, that's something that I've done, and, and and I'm really happy about it. Marcus, it's very clear to me that you have an exciting life ahead after tennis. You know, and hopefully tennis will 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 continue and. I suppose over these, and I said to you before we started this show, this is about 120 something podcasts I've done. I've been very, very fortunate to speak to amazing people like yourself, you know, in the game. And one one reflection that I've had on it is, and I've always believed, I guess tennis is the vehicle. It's our vehicle, but it's it's not our be all and end all. And 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 I sometimes think we get so caught up with the success of winning tennis matches, of having this ranking, of, of doing this, whereas obviously we want to do those things, but ultimately we have to understand where the context of tennis is in our life. You know, and, and, and I think in my experience of working with players, those that haven't been able to understand that context, and it's been just the absolute all and everything, have, have, have often found themselves in quite unhappy places. Whereas it seems to me like you have a real clear idea that yes, tennis and hopefully you'll play tennis. I don't know how long you want to play, but hopefully you'll play for another 10 years and have lots more success on the court. But I can't help thinking that the real success and the real definition of your life is going to be how you've used that vehicle of tennis into, into all of these other things, which I just think are, are such brilliant areas to be involved in. And, and I guess my, my last question before we go to quick fire, what is the future for Marcus Daniel? You know, if we go, you know, over the next five, 10, 15 years, where do you see your future? Yeah, so I, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there where it, it, it's, 
became a realization for me pretty early on, I think that uh, tennis, tennis has been a huge part of my life and it will continue to be a huge part of my life for some years yet. Uh, but I, I alluded to it earlier where I have always felt a desire to try to balance the scales. And when I say balance the scales, I mean, I mean, you know, we all have a, an impact on the world as we move through it. And with our lifestyles in this day and age, we do contribute to climate change. We, you know, we, we have a negative impact uh, whether we like to or not. And so my, my life uh, and what I want to devote my life to after tennis is trying to weight the scales as heavily as possible as I can on the positive side. So leave behind me as much good as possible rather than, uh, you know, being even or even even having a negative influence on the world. And I do see high impact athletes as a vehicle to achieve this. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it because when I landed on the idea of starting an organization, it just really resonated with my, my whole being that after tennis, I had often thought that it's going to be a struggle to find something that that I'm as passionate about that wakes me up in the morning that has this burning drive inside me. And I do feel like I've found that with HIA and, and with effective altruism. And I'm excited for post tennis life where I can wake up in the morning and put all of my day into trying to grow this organization and spread the message of doing good and try to create as much tangible impact on the world as possible. So yeah, I, I, I do think that's gonna be a, a lifetime's work. Brilliant. Quick fire. Are you ready? Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup, because New Zealand doesn't have a chance of being an ATP Cup for at least another five years. Singles or doubles? Doubles. Favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. Ad side or juice side? Ad. Eye formation or normal formation? Eye. Is Cameron Norrie really British or is he from New Zealand? He's a Kiwi. Listen to him speak. <laughs> Should there be a joint ATP and WTA or not? Yes, joint. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? Full juices in doubles during the in regular tour season. And who should our next guest be on the podcast? Felix Auger Eliassin. What what I say to every guest in the in the small print when I send the original email is that you are then responsible for bringing that guest onto the show. So I will pick. I up, like that. <laughs> I will I will pick up with you, Marcus, after the show on that to get to get Felix to get Felix on the show. But genuinely, I loved love chatting to you. I think it. I I found myself as you were talking listening to that myself you know as if i was listening to a podcast it, it had a had a big impact on me hearing you seeing you feeling you in in in, in every way about that i i know it will have that a, a effect on so many people that are going to listen keep spreading the good word keep doing your thing obviously good luck on the court uh but good luck also with this greater purpose and i would certainly love to to touch base with you offline on this even more so Thank you. Thank you for your time, Marcus. Dan, thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed this chat. It's it's always fun to dig deeper in, into tennis and, and for me also more fun to dig deeper into subjects off court. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for having a really interesting conversation with me. And uh, I, I hope some of our, our listeners are intrigued by what we're doing and, and reach out because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm open to chatting with anyone about this stuff. Wow. Well, that certainly makes me feel like I'm a bit of a rubbish human being. Uh, what an incredible, an incredible guy Marcus Daniel is. And lots for us to unpack. As always, I've got Vicky beside me and so many things that he's gone into there and, and, and so many messages for, I think, all of us to think on. Yes, yeah, certainly a very impressive man. Um, so much to talk about. I, I think to start with, for me, it was his junior days. As he said, he had quite an atypical junior career I was really surprised with how little tennis he actually played yeah and it seems to be not I wouldn't say common but there's been certainly we've had Dominic Kopfer 
on the show. We've had Alex Ward recently on the show. And there seems to be a certain people that that works for. And, and, and I think just listening to Marcus, it's very clear that he's become a well-rounded individual. And, and maybe one of the criticisms of our sport of tennis is we throw these young kids into the sport at a very young age and don't give them a whole lot else. They leave school early and, and they maybe don't develop certain sides of their character that one isn't going to help them necessarily life after tennis, but also I do believe doesn't necessarily help them when they're in tennis. And I think the example I would give as you listen to Marcus okay, age 31, and then you listen to Holger Rune, aged 18, just how different their upbringings are. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how somebody like Holger, you know, turns out over the next 10 or 15 years compared to someone like Marcus. And my second point on that would be they all seem to do lots of other sports, you know, and Marcus talked about his joy of being outside, his joy of being in the mountains. You know, he was a, he was a good footballer and and all of those skills do transfer very nicely into a sport like tennis as well. And we also talk about sacrifices, you know, the sacrifices you have to make to be a tennis player. But for someone coming from New Zealand... And like he said, the, the months and months he'd have to be away from home just to be able to compete, it's, it's huge. It is, and I actually quite like the word investment over, over sacrifice, you know, and I think just having that positive spin on it. And, and, and if we take someone like Marcus, the investment he's had in his life of those travel weeks, of spending that time away, he's now situated and based in Barcelona. And, and you find a lot of these coming from down under, whether it's Australia or New Zealand, but, you know, have to have these bases in Europe. And, and yeah, another great perspective because those of us that live in Europe, in the tennis world, we complain if we go on two-week trips or three-week trips. You know, these, these guys are doing four, five, six. So you better be sure that this is the life that you want to be going down. You know, and I think there's not so many players come out from those countries, probably for that reason, you know, and the ones that do come out tend to have some pretty good success because they're, they're not playing, huh? They're not playing if you're, you're booking that ticket and you're not returning for eight or nine months. But would you say that their success is more impressive? I think anybody that's successful in this sport, it, it, we know the difficulties of it. You, you have to be impressed. And, and I go further afield in tennis for that. In any sport, in, in any business, in any field, for you to make your way to the to the top levels of anything, I think we have to tip tip the hat to them because we, we don't, unless we're in the field, we don't know the nuances and the complexities and the difficulties that go with being successful in anything. Certainly, yes, they have to probably adapt a little bit more at, at, at a certain age. But then, you know, you see the Aussies, you see those from New Zealand, they seem to hang out with each other and maybe they have more fun because there's a bit more camaraderie on the road than there is for those that are just darting back to their, their homeland after every tournament. So I think it's certainly a good challenge to give, but I would say I'm impressed with anybody who has success and pushes themselves to the limits in anything that they do. I mean, yeah, you talk about the fun and the camaraderie and the support that these players can have. But on the flip side of that, these tennis players are also under a huge amount of pressure. I mean, the whole tennis world right now is talking about Naomi Osaka and her withdrawal from Roland Garros. I mean, we've discussed mental health a lot over the last year, and this is something that you'll also be picking up on uh, later today, Dan. Yeah, and, and, and I'm going to leave that. The Naomi Osaka topic and the, and the mental health topic is is obviously a massive topic that we need to bring to the forefront. We have done that, I believe, on numerous occasions on, on the podcast. And later on today, I'll be speaking to Igor Svontek's sports psychologist, Daria Ab Abrahamovitz. And that we are going to then be really trying to unpack one you know, the Naomi Saka example, but also looking into ways that we can help our athletes and understand that ultimately we've got young people that we're dealing with. So we, we, we will get into that 
a lot more and we'll be releasing that podcast in the next 24 36 hours so please do watch out for that one it's going to be it's going to be a great listen and i believe it's a, it's a must listen it's a one that we need to share with parents players coaches and get a real understanding it's real and before we even talk about hitting tennis balls that has to be taken care of first and what i can't help thinking is Marcus Daniel has got himself to a point which also can massively help with mental health. You know, it came through loud and clear. He's not completely obsessive over the tennis bit. He has other parts of his life. He has a perspective. He's been able to really understand where the tennis role fits, you know, where it is the vehicle. We talked about this at the start of the podcast and his ability to now go, okay, I'm playing tennis for these reasons, you know, and if I'm if I'm winning and I'm doing well and I'm feeling good about myself by by giving part of my wage to people that need it more than me, but at the same time I'm also learning from my losses and I'm going along the way and it, and it just feels like that from a and I, I go back to the Joe Dixon episode which is episode 39 of Control the Controllables which he talked about you know, mental health is when your glass gets filled up and it starts to overflow and you get a bit overwhelmed. And we have to all have self-care ways of releasing some of that water from our glass so we're on kind of sturdier, steadier ground. And Marcus spoke so well, looks very clear about where everything fits into his life and, you know, this whole thing that he is doing, which is, is just such a fantastic way to be it certainly seems to be releasing some of the water from his glass and then in turn he's then able to go onto the tennis court and play with a little bit more freedom a little bit more clarity and just have a little bit more of an understanding of of what he's putting in on a daily basis is having a positive impact because I do think as tennis players the concern is that they work hard they sacrifice, they don't see it as an investment, they see it as a sacrifice, and then it's not going to bring the rewards that they wish. And that's where some of these pressures grow and grow and grow, uh, rather than trusting that it is an investment that will come back in the right way. So thank you, Marcus, for opening all of our minds to that and giving us those great learnings. I think also, he, like he said, he sounded really excited about um, when he retires from tennis and he can focus all of his energy. He has a clear plan. And I think we, we do hear from players, um, we have heard on the podcast from players who have said when they stopped, you know, they didn't really know what to do. They didn't have that kind of plan for their future after tennis. And I, I, I think that plays a huge part as well. But what he's done is incredible. He said he just set up high impact athletes in December of last year. I had a look on the website last night. He has so many athletes already involved and already contributing. And they've got a, actually a list with all the numbers of how many children they've helped, how many animals they've helped, and, and all the different ways um, all these athletes are contributing to, to make a difference. Yeah, brilliant. And just quickly, my last thing to say just on, on that point, uh, we are going to be talking about Naomi Osaka later with Daria, and that's in her career. But I do think a lot of those mental health problems do come after careers. And, and I think your point is a fantastic point there, Vicky. You know, all of you tennis players that are listening out there, you know, make sure that you are understanding where tennis fits into the context of your life. Get those next stages planned. Get your passions set up because I promise you it puts you in a much better place for when you stop and you come away from the buzz of, of competing. So I think that's a great message to end this show on. And yeah, until next time, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>